This is The Guardian. Today, in Africa's Sahel region, there have been eight coups in the past three years. Why the latest one in Niger might be different. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Back in February 2020, in those strange few weeks when COVID was all over the news, but you could still kind of hope that it would just go away somehow. I was in Burkina Faso, in West Africa, reporting on what was then the fastest growing refugee crisis in the world. The UN says about 1,000 people have fled their homes every day of 2019. Hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even more than a million, nobody really knew for sure, were streaming out of the north of the country, an area called the Sahel. Most fled their homes after men raided their villages. They were walking for days in this bright red dirt, or taking motorbikes, or using carts pulled by donkeys, bringing whatever they could carry. And other than the scale of the people, just their sheer number, what I remember was there were almost no men. When I asked people why, they said the men were either looking for work or they were in hiding or they had been killed. Because what had driven so many people to take this journey was this total breakdown of law and order. Jihadi groups or criminal gangs or a mix of both storming into villages, killing people or kidnapping them or telling them to go just leave. And this phenomenon of lawlessness and violence and refugees was happening right across the Sahel, across this thick, dry band of territory, through countries like Mali, Guinea, Chad and Sudan. And in the three and a bit years since I was there, that violence has only gotten worse, eating away at the states where these jihadis operate. And one after another. Now, the leaders of a military coup in Guinea have promised to set up a transitional government of national unity, but given no details of when the country would return to democratic elections. Governments in Burkina Faso, Mali, Guinea, Chad, Sudan have all been toppled by their own militaries. Mali's president, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, announced his resignation just hours after being detained by armed soldiers. This part of the Sahel has come to be known as the coup belt of Africa. Military rule from the Atlantic Ocean to the Red Sea. There was one exception, Niger, which has 25 million people, is desperately poor, was surrounded by states with military governments, but had a legitimate elected one. One that hosted Western troops there to fight the jihadis. A country the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, had called only months ago a model of democracy. 
We are also supporting investments in the long-term security of Niger, investments that help make Niger's law enforcement more effective in combating terrorism. And then, two weeks ago. This day, 26 July 2023, Soldiers appeared on Nigerian state TV, saying they'd removed the president from power, and now they were in charge. They said they've dissolved the constitution in the West African country, suspended all institutions and closed the country's borders. Niger was meant to be a place that showed another way the problems of the Sahel could be managed. And because of something unexpected that's happened since the coup, it still may be. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus why the coup in Niger could be an African turning point. Peter Beaumont, you're a senior Guardian journalist. Take us back to July 26th. How did this coup unfold? It's interesting. I mean, like other people, I started seeing messages on Francophone, Twitter and elsewhere talking about odd things happening outside the presidential palace and the army. Smoke fills the air outside the president's party headquarters in Niger's capital, Niamey. At first, like, like other people who were looking at it, we just thought, oh, this is, this is a mutiny, this is a small thing. Troops had blocked off the entrances to the presidential palace and the president's residence. But the situation soon turned violent. Protesters smashed windows, set fire to the gates of the embassy and warned against foreign interference in their internal affairs. But as the day continued, it became clear that despite some of the noises coming from the rest of the military, this wasn't just a minor mutiny. This wasn't just about threats to the head of the presidential guard, uh, Chiani, who had been threatened with removal, but actually a much more serious incident, and that it was in fact moving in the direction of a coup. People are suffering. Nigerians shouldn't be living like this. People are coming out to support the Putschists because they are here to bring balance to the country. What emerged was that the President Bazoum had been held with his family by members of the Presidential Guard in his house, essentially taken hostage. The Army General and head of the Presidential Guard, Abdurrahman Chiani, removed President Mohamed Bazoum from power and declared himself as the new head of state. And then what we saw in, in the following days was a hardening of the coup noises, other members of the military appearing to fall in line with the coup, and the beginning of sort of serious diplomatic and security crisis. And who do we think were the key plotters behind the coup? And what kind of motive did they give for doing it? It's quite clear now that this related essentially to sort of an elite conflict among amongst uh, the leaders in Niger. Um, the head of the presidential guard had been in Bazoum sites for removal, along with other senior officers. I mean, the initial messages that came out of Niger was that this was essentially a spat, that this was the army just protesting about sort of the removal of an officer. But in the in the days since the coup was given an official status by the officers going on television and making Chiani the, the head of state, what's become clear is that they quite quickly moved to try and legitimize their moves by sort of painting this as a sort of that Bazoum wasn't capable of dealing with the country's problems, security or otherwise, that they were going to 
provide a safer pair of hands. But also, as they they've done that, they've sort of wrapped this move in the cloak of fighting against neo-colonial France and the French troops that are here for the counterinsurgency operation. And so, having started as essentially a, an officer being removed, it's now turned into something rather different. What's been the reaction among the Nigerian public? I mean, that's quite difficult to gauge. I mean, we've seen anti-French demonstrations. I mean, how organized they are, you know, whether these have been drummed up or not is not clear. There have been lots of anti-French slogans, people waving Russian flags. Elsewhere in the capital, they hold aloft the Russian flag, demonstrators who see it as a source of security. I mean, what is quite clear, however, is the ordinary Nigerians, it's a country of 25 million, it's very impoverished, they haven't benefited very much from the kind of Western assistance that has gone to the government for security operations or from the export of uranium. So there is a lot of discontent. We think that what is necessary today is to have a win-win partner, not a partner where it's only the West that profits. It's about dignity. That's our problem. And because of France's historic role in Africa and its, its historic behaviour, there is a huge amount of suspicion towards France over its intentions in Africa, and therefore it becomes a very, very easy foil to hold up and say, look, it's the old colonialists, they won't leave us alone. And so it's complicated. And I'd like to get into those complications, especially when it comes to France, the US and Russia. But before we do, where is President Bazoum right now? As far as we know, he's being held in the residence with his family. I mean, he's able to talk to foreign politicians. I mean, he's he's spoken to Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State and other leaders. In that sense, he really does appear to be more of a hostage than a prisoner who's being kept out of earshot because he is able to communicate. I mean, he wrote a Now, he wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post last week. We don't know how he managed to get this message to the Washington Post, but despite his circumstances, he was really critical of the army in Niger. He said they had no vision, and he defended his record because he's been accused of not taking the country's... Okay, that's unusual for, for a potentially deposed president. Why is the army giving him so much freedom, the ability to speak to the US Secretary of State, to write for American newspapers? It's interesting. I mean, they do appear to be holding Bazoum as a negotiating chip. It's why I use the word hostage, because they want him to be seen, I think, to be safe and well, and his voice to be heard in the sense that the people that know he's he's still alive. And so I think behind all this is the sense that there is some kind of negotiation, but it's just not clear on what terms and to what end. Nasreen Malik, you're a columnist at The Guardian, and we've just heard Peter describe this coup as potentially a dispute among Niger's elites. But the reason why it's gotten so much international attention is because of where Niger sits, the wider Sahel region that's been described as one of the most unstable parts of the world. Why is that? What's been happening in the Sahel that's been causing so much misery to the people who live there and concern around the world? Well, I think something that's been going under the radar slightly over the past decade as global attention has moved on from al-Qaeda and ISIS and Islamic terrorism in general 
as that movement has receded from the Middle East and North Africa is that it has migrated and concentrated in the Sahel. France's 5,100 soldiers stationed across the Sahel, a region stretching thousands of kilometers across the southern Sahara Desert, including Mali, Burkina Faso, Chad and Niger. The Sahel is now the largest concentration of um, Islamic jihadism in the world, um, and that has been a migration from the Middle East and North Africa. French, American and European troops have for years tried to improve security, especially along international borders. But the scale and frequency of attacks by groups affiliated to ISIL and Al-Qaeda are increasing. In a region so there's more troops, more military funding, and generally just more military intervention in that region from Western powers that see jihadism or Islamic movements in the Sahel as a threat. And then a final point I would make is that there's also been a lot of movement in between different parts of the Sahel and tension between different tribes, sedentary and nomadic, because of climate change and famine and sort of grazing rights and water rights that has been happening for five decades now. And so the sort of roiling impact is just odysseys of movement, sometimes in small dribbles, you know, tens and hundreds of people from villages, and then hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions if there is a big precipitation of conflict. And that creates even more stability because whether they end up in another African country or in another area of the of the country that they're moving, when they're internally displaced, that then creates more tension and more need for resources and more help and more foreign aid. And so it becomes a, a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that conflict therefore creates more conflict as people move and bring with them their needs, their hungers, their resentments, and their strain on resources wherever they are. And Srin, over the past two or three years, we've seen what the combination of those different crises does to the various governments in the region. What's been happening and why? What it has done is that, A, it has created a large disenfranchised community of pliable and employable young men that could then join paramilitary organizations or rebel movements. And it has also created a sense of perma-instability. And so the sense is that whether these conflicts are related to climate change or tensions that have existed for ages or jihadi movements coming in and kind of changing the security infrastructure and even the social infrastructure of some of these areas, it has created the sense that governments, and in, most, in some cases democratically elected governments, are not doing their job, number one, or number two, are kind of easy to overthrow because there's a higher concentration of arms and men and troops outside of government. Peter, this is the eighth coup in West Africa in the past three years, but there's one pretty big difference with this one, which is that ECOWAS, an association of different West African states, said last week that what's happening in Niger cannot stand. It's one coup too many. And they've threatened military intervention if the president of Niger isn't reinstated. In the event the authorities' demands are not met within one week, take all measures 
necessary to restore constitutional order in the Republic of Niger. Such measures may include the use of force. What do you make of that threat? And do you think that kind of regional military intervention is a real possibility? I mean, I do think it's a possibility. I think they're pursuing two different two different roads at the moment, the, the first of which is planning for an intervention and doing it very, very publicly with the, the army chiefs of staff of Ecos members meeting in Abuja to discuss how they were doing. They've also sent a delegation um, to Niger as a carrot to try and say, look, we're serious about this. We need to talk about an off-ramp and the threat of military action is there as a backup to the attempts of mediation and diplomacy to get Bazoum released and to move in the direction towards restoring Niger's constitution. Well, as we're talking now, we're no closer to seeing that constitution restored. And at the same time, the military governments that have taken over recently in places like Mali and Guinea and Burkina Faso have said themselves that if ECOWAS intervenes in Niger, they're also going to intervene to defend the military government. So this is shaping up as a pretty risky standoff. I'm sceptical about the capacity of Burkina Faso or Mali or you know Guinea to actually deliver on that. I mean, they're struggling with their own security situations. I, I think it's more big talk than actual reality. And I think rather than reflecting the situation in Niger, I think what it actually reflects is the nervousness of the other coup regimes about ECOWAS taking action against the latest coup. Peter, a big part of this is the shadow that France has cast over this region for decades and the way that many countries are now beginning to chafe at that presence. What is the French role in this region and how has it been changing in recent years? Niger is a former French colony. I mean, these places are part of Francophone Africa, Actually, what's interesting about this is the, the since uh, Emmanuel Macron came to power, he's actually tried to reset the relationship between France and Africa. He's talked about partnerships with African countries. He's returned cultural artifacts. I mean, France has actually, ironically, been in the midst of a, a substantial reset in the way that it deals with former Francophone countries, some of which were its colonies. But I mean, because of French history, because of the way that it behaved and, and continued behaving in the post-colonial period, there is a long-lasting substantial suspicion of French motives that is kind of still felt very deeply and viscerally. And so even though Macron has tried to advance a different relationship, what people still see is is the old France and the old ways of doing business. And and they see that with French troops. They see that with French operations. And, and that's something of a paradox. You said that this mix of lawlessness, the breakdown in stability, the growing jihadist threat, and the kind of simmering resentment a traditional French role in the region have opened space for Russia to become involved. We've seen some in Niger waving Russian flags, carrying signs praising Vladimir Putin. What is the Russian role in all of this? Where it comes to Niger, it's not clear at the moment. I mean, the head of Wagner, Evgeny Prigozhin, put out a statement sort of saying that this is part of the anti-colonial struggle, etc., etc. I mean, coming from a man who spent two years waging a colonial war in Ukraine, that's pretty ironic from him. Ironic from him. Um, 
the official Russian position um, from Sergei Lavrov has been much more ambiguous, appearing to sort of support the the constitution in Niger. But what's clear is from from what's happened in the other countries in the Sahel is that you know Wagner is is trying to push itself into that space that Russia is trying to court some of the new coup leaders. I mean, it, we know it's long been interested in expanding its influence in Africa, not least in places where where there are resources and where feels that it can get political influence. In Niger, for all that we've seen the Russian flags, and for all that we know, uh, because President Bazoum said it himself in an interview in, in May, we know that that some of the Russian back-trolling sites have attacked him. But but in terms of whether there's any real practical Russian involvement, this is absolutely not clear at all. And the truth is, for all that Prigozhin has said, I mean, He's in a pretty sticky situation anyway in Russia, and it could just as easily be him bigging himself up in a place in which he might argue that he's been a bit more successful than elsewhere. I think for most people listening to this, Niger will feel like it's a long way away. It may actually be a long way away from where people are listening. But as a story, is it something people should be paying attention to? You know, I, I think I think the story is one that people should be paying attention to for two reasons. The attempts to stabilise the situation in the Sahel have not been successful, not, not French efforts, not the UN-backed mission. You know, we know from recent history what happens when you have permissive spaces for jihadist insurgencies. You only have to look what happened in Iraq. You only have to look what happened in Syria. So I think... You know, recent history tells us that, that from the security point of view, this is very important. I mean, for me, one of the really big stories around this is actually seeing sort of an, an, an African political and security grouping really standing up and taking this seriously. You know, here we have the local countries talking about how to deal with this, getting involved in the negotiations, talking about the different kinds of sanctions. And essentially sort of saying, you know, this is our backyard. We're going to deal with this. this we don't need a Chapter 7 intervention. And, and that feels to me to be very important as well. Coming up, Niger's military leaders had until Sunday night to give up power. And they haven't. So what happens now? Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, 
You need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Nasreen, the ECOWAS deadline for military leaders to relinquish power in Niger passed three days ago on Sunday evening, and that military government remains in charge. So what is the situation as we're speaking now? The situation is that it's essentially a standoff between ECOWAS and the perpetrators of the coup in Niger. The airspace was closed in Niger as a way to kind of preempt any military action on the part of ECOWAS. There's also been a kind of escalation of rhetoric and confrontation in Niger. Basically, the coupsters are daring ECOWAS to come at them. They're daring ECOWAS to come and try and reverse the coup by force. I think the hope on the part of ECOWAS was that the strong language, the uncharacteristically strong language and the threat of force would be a discouraging factor um, for this coup to go ahead. And the fact that the deposed president has been, you know, very much still in play. He is on the fo- he's working the phones, he's talking to diplomats, um, and he is, you know, extending his power through the diplomatic representation of Niger across the world. So there is a sense that the coup has not quite found its feet yet, which is usually what happens in these coup situations. It takes a few days um, for the previous regime to be entirely uprooted, and that has not happened yet. So there is a window where ECOWAS feels that if there is a sense that the the opposition to this coup is strong enough and the resolve is high, that it will be reversed. That has not worked. We've seen similar coups in places like Guinea, like Mali, like Burkina Faso, that seem to go unchallenged. This is the story of yet another government in this part of Africa falling into military rule. But is there something exceptional and maybe hopeful in the way that ECOWAS has responded drawing a line and saying, we don't want yet another military government in our ranks and we're willing to do something about it ourselves rather than waiting for or allowing Western governments or the Russians to try to step in and shape the destinies of people on the continent. There is something exceptional about this. Um, Whether it's hopeful is, is another question. I think time will tell whether these are the right strategies. I mean, the worry is that you know, if you try and challenge a coup so forcefully, then you get a a, a situation where it's not just civil war, but intra-country war. But it's definitely exceptional and suggests that there is an evolution and 
a kind of higher sophistication when it comes to understanding the impact of these coups, not just internally, not just across the Sahel, but across Africa in general, because on the continent, there are three countries with airspace that is close to commercial traffic. There's Sudan, Libya, and Niger. And where they are placed on the map couldn't be worse because <laughs> you've got, you know, east, north, west. And what they do, so if you think about it geographically, is that they essentially disrupt commercial activity across all of Africa. And these are very high stakes. This is not a situation that it was 20 years ago. You know, these are not coups that can pass easily because economic relations are weak and economic stakes are low. And so these coups become not just a security concern, which they are, but they are also economic and commercial concerns and risks at the moment because they tend to cut Africa off, not just from the rest of the world, but from itself. In that way, it sounds like Niger is shaping up as a turning point for the continent, but we're just not sure yet if it's a positive or a negative one. We're not sure. It could be the case that behind the scenes, the ECOWAS resolve is being backed up by other forces and other influences that might come to bear and the coup is reversed. I'm less optimistic in that scenario. I think that there is within ECOWAS a lot of fear and concern about launching into military action in Niger. So it's very unclear where things are heading. But what is for certain is that a coup that might have passed quietly and as business as usual a few years ago is definitely not getting that treatment today. And so that suggests that there is a pivot towards trying to resolve these issues internally or within the African organizational community as opposed to waiting for you know, these things to play out or waiting for Western intervention. There is also an understanding, I think, that it's a bit of a tinderbox at the moment, right? Demographics look very troubling. There are a lot of young people, a lot of young unemployed men. Niger has the highest birth rate in the world. The population is extremely young, quite underemployed, quite underutilized, economies are growing, casual labor is rising, and there might be even more tension in the future, even if you discount small weapons, climate change, etc. There is just a population slash underemployment time bomb that nobody wants to see turn into a sort of permanent violence entrepreneurship in the region. Nasreen, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Nasreen Malik, a columnist with The Guardian. Thanks also to Peter Beaumont, a senior Guardian journalist. His coverage of this coup you can find at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Alex Atak. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.